You guys know I'm always talking about tracking my money. You can't manage what you don't measure. And I use a paid app to do that because I'm kind of crazy. But when I talk to you guys, my readers and my listeners, you want a free solution. You want something that links to your personal accounts and tracks your net worth. You want something that has analysis tools and a personalized plan for you. And you want real wealth management advice. The free answer is personal capital. Personal capital is an awesome tool, and it is hard to believe that it's free. And the world agrees. Year after year, personal capital is recognized as a best-in-class budgeting and tracking tool. And that's why I feel good about being affiliated with them. So if you want to start getting your finances in order, and you want to do it for free, start with personal capital. Here's how. Go to the show notes, click on that link, and let them know that the best interest sent you, and start your free account today. That's personal capital, your all-in-one free personal finance tool. Welcome to the Best Interest Podcast, hosted by Jesse Kramer, where we discuss today's best ideas in personal finance and investing. The Best Interest is a personal podcast meant for entertainment purposes only. It should not be taken as financial advice and is not prescriptive of your financial situation. Here's your host, Jesse Kramer. Hey guys, welcome to episode 35 of the Best Interest Podcast. My name is Jesse Kramer. And my guests today are Allie and Josh, better known as the FI Couple. Now, if you are interested in real estate investing, in retiring early, or maybe even in incorporating investing into your long-term relationships, then this is a great episode for you. But real quick, before I introduce our guest, could you please pause the show and then in your podcast app, give a rating and review to the Best Interest Podcast. Why? Because the best interest, it's a growing small business, and I want to keep making this content for people just like you. A rating and a review, it lets all those fancy algorithms know that you care about this podcast. And I know I'm asking for your time, I'm asking for your effort, and I know that you don't owe me anything. So I really appreciate those of you who decide to sacrifice that time and effort to leave that rating and review. Thank you, guys. So with that... Let's go meet our guest. My guests today, they are a young couple who are documenting their journey to financial independence with a particular focus on real estate investing and index fund investing. And you can find them sharing their message with tens of thousands of followers on Instagram and Twitter. And today, they came to share with us. So I am honored to welcome Allie and Josh, better known as the FI Couple, onto the Best Interest Podcast. Hey guys, how you doing? Doing so good. We're so excited to be here with you tonight and to finally connect um, face-to-face. Yeah, thank you so much. (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you guys for coming here. Well, real quick, for the listeners who aren't familiar with your story, I figure a great place to start is with just a little intro about who you are. It can be even as fun as, you know, how you guys met. Uh, how you guys became a couple of the FI couple, and then especially kind of what your money journey has been like and and how it got you to where you are today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So Josh and I met at state school in New York. Um, He was the cute guy from class that walked me home one day after class. And um, we have been pretty inseparable ever since. Um, we started our marriage in 2018 with over a hundred thousand dollars in student loans. Um, we really didn't talk about money a lot. We weren't super financially literate in terms of like savvy with personal finance. Um, but a lot happened in 2018 that kind of catapulted that self-education. Yeah. So, I mean, I was unexpectedly laid off from a long-term job and that was also the year of our wedding. Um, and kind of leading up to that, we had both been working really, really hard in our jobs and kind of the year before our wedding, we weren't really seeing each other as much as we would really have liked. And so we were kind of like reflecting one day of like, well, you know, if we're getting ready to get married, but we're not really spending a whole lot of time together. Like, 
what can we do differently so that we have more time to spend together? And I think having Josh getting laid off, it was one of those fork in the road moments where it's like, what mm -hmm. can we do differently? And what are we not liking in our life? And for us, it was, we are strapped with debt and the modest salaries that we're making are not going to cut it to pay it off on the timeline we want. So first it was discovering Dave Ramsey. Then it was, you know, bigger pockets, real estate investing, and it kind of catapulted snowballed from there. Um, and we became totally obsessed. So long story short, that's kind of the gist of it. Yeah. So you mentioned bigger pockets right there. Now, Dave Ramsey is, is probably fairly well known. We've actually talked about him before recently here on the podcast. Those who don't know, what is bigger pockets? Yeah, so I always joke that Bigger Pockets is like the Google for real estate. So <laughs> it's the largest real estate educational platform, I think, in the world, um, at, at the very least in the United States. So, um, but it's an online educational resource for anyone who's looking to start, you know, what is real estate investing, you know, kind of beginners all the way to like, how can I buy a hundred million dollars worth of real estate? and everything in between. And so along with having online resources, they've also have probably about a dozen or so books that were published. Um, and the more that we started talking about kind of like real estate and financial independence, the more it seemed like real estate was gonna have to be the way that we went because neither one of us are necessarily, you know, lucrative careers. Um, and we, had, we still had $100,000 in student loans. So um, we had to figure out a way to make more money while also spending less money. Um, and real estate was that solution for us. Let's get into the real estate because I do have a few questions about your guys, your, your real estate ventures. Um, and one of the first ones, only because I've seen you talking about it before, and I think it's a really cool idea, is it's so-called house hacking, right? So, so correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that you guys either were or still are house hacking. And that was one of the first real estate moves you made. So explain to us, what exactly is house hacking and, and how did that help you out? House hacking is amazing. And in our opinion, it is one of the best ways that you can kind of dip your toe into the real estate investing waters. Um, so with house hacking, you're either going to buy a single family home or a multifamily home, but it is going to be your primary residence for at least a year. And because you move into the home, you qualify for a low down payment owner occupant loan. You can get 0% if you're a VA, 3.5% for an FHA, or 5% for a conventional. So you're putting very little money down and you're moving into a house. Now, if you buy a single family home, you would rent out the bedrooms and that rent would cover most of or all of the mortgage. So you're essentially living for cheap or free. Now, if you buy a multifamily home like we did, we bought a duplex, we moved into one of the apartments and then we had a tenant in the other apartment and his rent covered half of the mortgage. In the beginning, this made us go from paying $1,300, $1,400 a month in rent to about $600 in new rent, which was just our mortgage. Um, but we've actually house hacked twice. So now we live completely for free. We don't pay anything. Um, so it's really cool. So let me see if I get this straight. So you're, you're, you were living in an apartment where your rent was around 13 or 1400 and that rent kind of disappears, right? That, that is money that you're spending that you never see anything back from. In your first house hack, there's someone living on the other side of the wall from you, which let's be honest, it does have some downsides. Oh yeah. But the upside is that your new rent is only 600 and of that 600, some of that I assume is, is actually equity that you would eventually see back correct? Yeah. Okay. You have your mortgage term, it's mostly paying off interest, but eventually it gets to this interesting point where it's mostly principal pay down and you are paying down the mortgage. Yeah. And so what was cool too, again, like, so, I mean, Allie was working full-time in her career. I got laid off. So I was kind of in between jobs. I took a job. I was driving for Uber. Um, I was doing all types of things. And all the while I was also learning about real estate. And so you know, we, at the moment, we weren't sure, like, how can we really grow our income? But once we discovered the power of house hacking, we knew that if we could take our, even if we just cut our rent in half and say 1300 down to like 600 or 650, you know, if you took that $600 over the course of a year, that's over $7,000 mm -hmm. 
after tax that was now going back into our pockets. Because housing is pretty much usually the most expensive line item in someone's budget. So we were pretty much able to completely eliminate that through house hacking. Wow. Okay. So, so just for my own education and maybe some people out there are curious. So how long did you live in that first house? And then when you transitioned into a, a second house where you're doing something similar, I guess, what was the living situation in that second house? And my final question is, does that mean that you retained ownership of the first house after moving to the second one? Yeah. So we moved into the first house hack. Um, actually, it was like the week of Christmas 2018. Mm-hmm. Uh, moved in. Um, and then really the whole purpose of that was we just wanted to pay off student loans as fast as possible. So we closed on the property, moved in. And then most of 2019, we honestly just focused on paying off student loans and really learning real estate and kind of building systems. And so we continued to live in the property all of 2019. Um, And then actually last year um, in September of 2020, uh, we closed on our second house hack, uh, which is where we are right now. It's also a duplex. So when we moved out of the first house, we rented our, our old apartment. Um, and so now both of those units are rented. So they completely cover the mortgage, taxes, insurance. We put money aside for maintenance. And then the cash flow from that property covers our portion of the mortgage down here at our second house. Hack. So we lived in the first property for a year and a half. And the second property, um, we're coming up on a year That's of living crazy. here. So pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Are there any... Are there any sort of tax implications that people should know about? I mean, so it sounds like with your first house, because you were there as primary residence, it, it, it was just like my primary residence, even though I don't have any tenants. But now that you're not living there anymore, does it get treated more along the lines of a business sort of tax scheme or, or how does that work? It's pretty cool because once you don't live there and it's not your primary residence, you're able to write off any capital expenditures or improvements that you're making on the property. So when we hire different companies to do improvements or we have expenses, um, we are able to write that off with our accountant. Yep. And then just anything that goes into the operation of the property. So taxes, insurance, we do have PMI because we use less than 20% down. That's uh, private mortgage insurance any maintenance costs. Uh, We had a leaky ceiling we had to repair at one point. Um, And then what's really cool is, and this is kind of like a unique to real estate thing, there's what's called depreciation. Now, normally depreciation kind of has like a negative connotation. It's like, oh, like something, you own something and it's going down in value. In In the realm of real estate, depreciation is really just for tax purposes. It's almost kind of like a gift the IRS gives to a real estate investor. And they take your property and over the span of a certain number of years, they say, this is what we think your property would depreciate by every single year. It's what's called a paper loss, right? And so it's often several thousands of dollars that is also now a tax deduction. Our property is not going down in value. It's just the way the IRS kind of reconciles with something that's you're owning longer. And so naturally there has to be some breakdown that goes into it. Right. That, that does make sense. So the, the overall value of the property isn't going down. But if you were to take a picture of the house year over year, yep. and you guys didn't do any maintenance on it, you <laughs> would see it slowly decaying, right? And, and the government recognizes that there's some loss of value there. And that's the, that's the depreciation. Is that? Oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead, Allie. Go ahead. I was going to say, and here in New York, we are living in 120 plus year old homes. So, um, you know, I think we were a little scared of living in old homes at first, all the things that could go wrong. But uh, we joke now, like, is it still standing after 120 years? You know, it's it's not too bad. Yeah, I can totally relate. I'm also, uh, I'm in Western New York. I'm in Rochester. And, uh, my house is built in the 30s, I think, 1930s. So it's coming up on 90, 90 or so years. And there's some parts that are definitely showing it. But on the whole, it's it's a good house. Yeah, yeah, they, they built them different back then. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. I wanted to go back, guys, and talk a little bit more about the specific finances. Now, you mentioned your accountant. You've mentioned, I think you mentioned an accountant. Or you, you at the very least, you mentioned kind of different things you can deduct tax-wise. And one thing that I've always felt a little unsure about when it came to uh, being a real estate investor is, you know, 
am I getting in over my head when it comes to the finances? Am I going to miss out on some obvious tax loophole and shoot myself in the foot? So what's been your experience with that? Have you hired a professional? Do you handle most of it yourself? Is, is this a lot of the stuff that you guys learned, you know, back in 2018 from bigger pockets that now you feel like seasoned pros? When Josh and I first started investing in real estate, I think we both had the misconception that we had to be experts in every single area. And I think that that misconception prevents a lot of people from getting in the game because they think they're not prepared. They need to know everything. It's very overwhelming. Josh and I are really big on focusing on our strengths and leaning into those. In any areas where we feel like we're not really expert, we hire out competent professionals that can do the job well. So in terms of taxes, we know what we need to know, but we leave the rest to our CPA. I'm going to do some nice cosmetic renovations in my home, but if I have electrical work that needs to be done, I'm hiring my electrician. I don't want to get electrocuted today. You know, um, so I think uh, there hasn't been any issues for us because we we treat our rental properties like a business that they are, and we delegate responsibilities to members of our team. I would say the one thing that was kind of a blind spot a little bit for us in the beginning was was bookkeeping, you know, mm. prior to investing in real estate. I mean, we just did like TurboTax. Our tax situation was actually pretty simple. Mm -hmm. um, so there wasn't a whole lot of record keeping. So luckily, we've been fortunate to have a great CPA who kind of walked us through everything that we would need to do. Um, and he kind of taught us, these are the forms that I'll need to see to make my life easier, which makes your life easier. Tracking all your expenses, different things like that. So. And, and now there's a lot of systems online that make it that much easier. And so we just keep all of our receipts. We scan them, we upload them, and then come tax season, he does his magic. Excellent. And, and out of curiosity, is that CPA, does he have a, like a real estate specialty or is he just a generic CPA and all generic CPAs know enough to handle a real estate investor's taxes? I want to say yes. You know, I feel like competent CPAs should be able to, but I will say that Josh and I are a bit biased with all of the professionals that we use, whether it's a real estate agent, a CPA, an attorney, we really like investor friendly fill in the blank. So our CPA is an investor himself. Um, he, he flips homes. Like he, he kind of really gets it. Mm -hmm. Our attorney actually is an investor. So we use our network to find people that really understand what we are doing in real estate. Cause we want to be able to take advantage of any tax incentive that we can, you know? All right, guys. Well, one more money question, if I may ask, I'm really curious what kind of, what kind of time commitment and what kind of financial commitment has been involved over the lifespan of your properties. And maybe, you know, we can talk about what you're putting in, but then also what you're getting out when it comes to cash flow. So I'll start here in saying that when Josh and I first started investing in real estate, we had very little capital to invest. I mean, we had a couple thousand bucks in our savings. We scraped together every dollar that we got from our wedding. We didn't go on a honeymoon and we bought a duplex instead. So for our first duplex, we put 5% down. Um, the property was $155,000. We're in the capital region of New York. I know that number is going to sound funny depending on what state you're coming from, um, which all in all, what was our total out of pocket for your down payment and closing costs? Uh, 14200 bucks. Josh is good with numbers. So okay. that was our out of pocket with the property. Um, beyond that, uh, we did have to invest some money into that property, but it's, it's kind of not a yeah, whole lot, I don't think. So, cause when we bought the property, there was a tenant already there. Um, and he was, he was paying below market rent, which was fine. Cause we were just excited to have a property and have a tenant. Mm -hmm. I remember January 1st, he gave us a, a check for like 750 bucks. And I was like, this is crazy. <laughs> um, and so he, about a year later, so he moved out. So we put uh, about $3,000 into his, into, well, into that apartment, I should to say. To make it nicer, we did some improvements. And so, um, so yeah, and then we got a new tenant in there. We got about $175 a month more in rent, um, which then further lowered our monthly payments. But with that property, it was pretty turnkey. And that's a phrase you'll hear a lot in real estate investing. Turnkey means you can move in. You don't really have to do anything. It's in great condition. So I would say that first year of real estate investing and with that first property in general, our time output 
was a couple hours a week. Like I really felt like our time output was when our tenant would knock on our door to hand us a rent check because he didn't understand electronic rent systems. And like, I talked to him for like 15 minutes. So I really feel like that was our biggest time output. Yeah. Now with our second property, it was very different. Yeah. Um, we used a three and a half percent FHA loan. Our total out of pocket for this property at 150 was 13,200 <laughs> to close. To close. So that's okay. your three and a half percent down plus your closing costs. In New York State, you're paying taxes. So the closing costs are like double your down payment. Mm -hmm. um, so with this property, it was in rougher shape. We got it at a great deal, but we had, um, you know, probably about close to fifteen dollars to $20,000 in improvements that we needed to make. So this property was not turnkey. Um, so because of that, I would say our time output for this one and our money output has been a bit more because typically when you buy a property, you're in like that stabilization phase where you want to get the property running smoothly, everything's good and working good. We are after a year at the, t the tail end of that. Um, so I'm noticing our time output. It comes in waves, but it's kind of decreasing. Yeah, I mean, in the beginning, it was, I mean, every single day, you know, we were working on something both expected and unexpectedly, mm -hmm. um, while also now kind of getting accustomed to managing a property that we didn't live in because we, you know, we rented out our other one. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, a year later now, relatively speaking, knock on wood, it's it's going pretty smoothly and it's back to that like one to two hour a week thing. But in the beginning, it was it was a lot of work. So you often hear the phrase like real estate investing is passive. You should do it. Um, <laughs> it's not passive. Some months it's more passive, um, but isn't it is an active investment. It has great returns, um, but it is it is not passive. Some months are you know, more active than others. It really varies. So you're in for an adventure if you invest in real estate. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of adventures, so it sounds like the second property was more of an adventure and, and potentially more of a risk, right? If I'm talking brass tax risk reward, the fact that you guys were going into a property that you knew you would have to put money into is definitely sounds more risky than your first turnkey property. So maybe, you know, what kind of mindset did you have going into the second property that maybe wasn't there for the first one? Or did you feel like your first property gave you the experience needed to tackle this second one? Yeah, I would say our first property like spoiled us. Um, you know, we we didn't think like, well, you could live for a lot cheaper and still really love the space that you were in. And we found that that was our first property. It was beautiful. It was, yeah, it was, it was, a, it was basically a house and it just so happened to have an apartment. It yeah. was, it was magical. So, um, uh, our second property though. Yeah. So, I mean, we had about a year and a half of experience in our, you know, under our belts, if you will. Um, our goal going in all the time, like I said before, was we had 102,000 and we no longer wanted to have student loans. So we were excited to be paying down. I think we got down to like $400 a month at the first property, but our goal was always zero. We live don't for free. live for free. Um, and so this property, it was an off market deal. We made through a relationship in the community. Um, I think we admittedly, I think we underestimated the amount of work that was going to be needed. We had a baseline idea but then kind of once we got in and really started opening things up, uh, I think it ended up kind of ballooning on us a little bit. I think we felt experienced and I think we were a little naive because our first house hack was so easy. We were like, let's do it again. This is great. And this house hack, like, I think the first three months I cried every day and I was yeah. like, we ruined our life here. Um, like it was really, really stressful and overwhelming. Um, but now looking back on everything we are such better investors we've gotten such 100%. experience when things break now i don't cry i'm just like okay what do i need to do so you know all of that challenge really made us better um in a lot of ways and sometimes like that's like the catch-22 like there's a there's an expression i like if you know jocko willink at all he says embrace the suck and like, it's not always fun to like do hard things, but it's the hard things that are actually going to make you way better. Um, and now, yeah, I feel like a way more competent real estate investor because of the hard stuff that we had to go through. I love, I mean, it totally is a catch 22, 
and the way you guys explained it, it makes perfect sense how challenging it would be going through it. And then potentially I can only think of going through it and kind of having those like, oh shit moments and, and feeling a little regret myself. But then when you're on the other side and you realize how you've grown from it, whether it's your, your actual, you know, kind of mechanical skills of fixing things up or whether it's maybe what you want to look at next time in a property and some of those investing lessons, like that is where the money is made, right? That's where the bread gets buttered and the real value is. Yeah, no, I love that. And yeah, it is. It, it was like, we went to school of real estate and we paid probably about $15,000 to learn a lot more than we'd ever known. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, now, yeah, now we're better investors because of it. But what I will say too, what's kind of cool about real estate is, so, I mean, we bought the property um, for 150000 and day one, I mean, we knew we, we were getting a decent deal, but it appraised for 168000 and this was before we had put any of the work into it. So right now it's probably about 178, 180,000, depending on, you know, who you talk to. Um, you know, so sometimes with real estate, you have what's called forced appreciation. So there's natural appreciation just from market conditions. And then you as the investor can actually make the property worth more because it can now produce more based on the work you did. Gotcha. So that, that would just mean you guys put in a better kitchen or you guys made it a finished basement. And therefore, the, the the home is worth more, or at the very least, you can rent it out for more. Both, Both yeah. Both, okay. Very yeah. interesting. Very interesting. So that's something I've been thinking about. The property that I'm talking to you from right now is my personal property that my girlfriend and I might end up moving out of in the near future. We'll see. And uh, one question I've had for myself is, what money do I put into this property with the expectation that I'll get it back out when I sell? You yeah. know. And then, so I'm thinking about, for example, upgrading the bathroom, because I think that might be something that is truly value added. It's a pretty small bathroom. It's like a Harry Potter closet. <laughs> so I think if I expand that, it might actually help the, help the place rent out a little bit better. So a lot of times, I mean, you could take some of the guesswork out of it too. So like, if you go on like Facebook marketplace or Craigslist or Zillow and stuff like that, and there's neighboring homes, like single family, similar layout and stuff like that and they're for rent, you can kind of gauge, okay, well, like this is our home as is. These are the homes. This is kind of our competition, if you will. Um, how does our home compare? Because sometimes what people do kind of get into trouble is they, without kind of doing that market analysis, they put a bunch of money in thinking like, nice, we're going to totally recoup this. Mm -hmm. And then they like over renovate kind of thing. Whereas as is, it might be ready to go. Like as an example, um, with our neighborhood that we live in, we live in a nice neighborhood. It's not bougie. It's a working class neighborhood. It's a safe, affordable community. And, um, you know, you could really get carried away with renovations. You could do granite countertops and put in hardwood floors and all of these things. I know that based on market rents in my neighborhood, I would never make my money back if I put all of those fancy finishes in um, because you just can't charge that where we live. Um, so I think it, it's really important to do your analysis because you might look at properties in your neighborhood and yours is the nicest one. And you're like, oh, I can just actually do it as is. As and is. I probably could get some great tenants. So yeah, we'll talk when you get to that point. Let's, let's uh, work together on that one. Yeah, very interesting. Um, and it, it does actually make me wonder, like what kind of thought process do you guys put into setting your prices? Do you try to meet what the market rate is in your area? Or I've heard some people say they actually try to rent, they charge a little bit above market rates, almost to project this, this message that, my property is a little bit nicer than average. What do, what do you guys think about that? That's actually very interesting to hear that. Um, we have a very, very involved process and analysis that I'm not going to bore you with, but we okay. spend a lot <laughs> of time making sure that we are appropriate with our rent. We use a lot of different resources. We go on Facebook, as Josh said, Zillow, Rentometer is another um, app that you can use. So we go on multiple sites to kind of look at comparable apartments. Um, but then after that, we really like to not charge the tippy top of the mm -hmm. market or above. We like to come in a little lower or at market rent or maybe a touch lower. Um, and the reason for that is because if you're charging the very, very top, 
you need to have a great reason about why you're charging it. And in today's day and age, you have all of these massive luxury apartment complexes that are offering a gym and snow removal and grant, you know, everything. And we are not that, you know, we are the small potato landlords. We own a couple duplexes and we offer a lot of great amenities, but we're not that. So when you charge a little below um, that tippy top, um, I think it actually helps with tenant retention. People want to stay there longer because they feel like they're getting a good deal. Um, anything else you want to add? Yeah. Well, I think sometimes like the hidden cost, like you talk about like financing, like the hidden cost and finances inflation in real estate, it's vacancy. And I think sometimes people get overzealous sometimes thinking like, oh, well, I'll get the top market rent. Well, every single month that that property is not rented, that is however many dollars every single month you're not collecting. Um, and unless you have a really, really big portfolio, I mean, if you go two months without rent, that could be an entire year worth of uh, cash flow right there. We actually have friends and coaching clients that we've worked with that have priced their apartments too high. And some of them, they've been without tenants for like three or four months. And then we talk to them and we do an analysis with them. And we're like, your apartment is $200 too high or whatever the number right. is. And they bring it to the number that makes more sense and they get dozens of applicants. So the number really could impact you a lot. So that's why it's important to have that forethought. Gotcha. That's really cool. I mean, that is a, uh, I'm a bit of an economics nerd and that is a supply and demand pricing model example right there, right? If, yeah. if your price is too high, then the demand at that price is going to be low and no one's going to, no one's going to eat up your supply. So you have to lower the price to make that uh, supply and demand meet. Um, yeah. Our big thing too, is like, we like the idea of uh, if someone was living somewhere else and they wanted to kind of like work upwards towards something like that, what we own, we, we have a spot for them. Or we've also had tenants who came from very, very high or more expensive apartments and they wanted something to work down, but it's still like a safe, clean neighborhood. And we can kind of acquiesce depending on where people are coming Goldilocks. from. The Goldilocks apartments. <laughs> right. Excellent. And one thing you touched on there that is a huge point, at least from my point of view, you said, you know, vacancy is your, is your worst enemy. Yeah. One of the worst enemies, because I just did a quick quick math, right? So if you lose two months of rent on vacancy out of a year, two out of 12 months, you're losing 17% of your revenue. Yeah. And on any sort of investment, if you're losing 17% of your return from somewhere, that might be all the profit and then some for that year. So that, that is huge. So I can see how tenant retention is, is kind of paramount in your minds. Crucial. Yeah. Yeah. And we spend a lot of time, not only in terms of the pricing of our apartments, um, but we also spend a lot of time being, I would say, very hands-on landlords. Um, what's nice about being a small potato landlord um, and buying pro properties in close proximity is that, relatively speaking, you know, if a tenant has a question or concern, we can act on that very quickly. Um, and a lot of times tenants, when they come to us and we kind of screen them, they tell us the experience that they had with their prior landlord and we do our best to not replicate that. Gotcha, gotcha. A couple things you've said, I've got some little questions that I thought might be, might be interesting. So the one, now that you have two houses, am I safe in assuming that you guys have 30-year mortgages on those houses, or what do your mortgages look like? Yep, we have 30-year fixed mortgages. Um, the first, Josh knows all the numbers. I don't even try to memorize them. What's the APR for both of them? Yeah, so the first one was 487. That one we bought in uh, end of 2018 where rates were a little bit higher. Mm -hmm. um, this one that we're in right now, we just closed. Well, not just closed, but last oh, year, yeah. um, we bought it at 2.7%. Okay, okay. And the 30-year, I mean, it makes sense to me on its face. The idea is that you want to keep your costs lower so that your cash flow stays positive. So a 15-year mortgage doesn't really make sense just because it makes it harder to be cash flow positive. Is that the thinking? Yeah. That's exactly it. Yeah. And also you really want your tenants to be paying off your asset for you. You make that initial investment on the actual down payment and closing costs. Um, and then of course, if any improvements need to be made, you're doing that. But really the goal of this is that you have renters and every month they pay that rent and eventually the principal is paid down in 30 years and you own a property free and clear. And for us too, sometimes I, I refer to it as like knowing which inning of the game you're in. 
So right now we are very comfortable taking on leverage in the form of a mortgage um, because by doing so, it allows us to right, have higher cash flow, um, which then covers more of our cost of living, which keeps more, loans. which keeps more of mm -hmm. our money in our pockets, which then expedites the process um, of uh, saving up for down payments. Eventually, um, and we're probably not that far off right now from where we want our, our kind of final portfolio to be, if you will. Once we're kind of at that point, we're not opposed to even if it's just one mortgage, um, kind of like rental debt snowballing that, if you will, getting that at least paid off, which then it's kind of like you're going from offense to defense a little bit. That will um, boost the cash flow because the principal interest is now gone, um, which covers more of our cost of living. Um, but that's really once our portfolio is, is where we want it to be. But right now, we're, at, we're just 30-year mortgages and we're letting other people pay off the houses. And rental debt snowball, for those that don't know, is where you take the cash flow from every property and you kind of lump it together every month and throw extra payments at your principal for one property. So technically, your rent and your tenant's rent money is still paying off that mortgage. It's not necessarily your money out of pocket. Um, so then you own a property with no mortgage. Gotcha. Very cool. And and I could see how over time these decisions, meaning, you know, the 30-year the mortgage decision or the, the rental debt snowball decisions, over time, they're going to compound to the point that's allow you, if you wanted to, you could essentially build your empire more quickly than, right? If you do a 15-year mortgage, actually more money is leaving your pocket every month in the form of mortgage payments, which means you can't save up that money for the next down payment on the next house. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, no, I think, so our, just an idea of like the snowball effect, it took us about a year to save up, probably actually a little bit longer to save up for our first uh, investment property. And we needed a little bit of help from family. Mm -hmm. uh, it took us probably about six months to save up for our second property. Um, and it just continues to compound and get faster and faster just as um, as our properties continue to perform, as our incomes continue to steadily rise, and then our expenses, um, they haven't really gone lower, but the income, our expenses haven't really gone up either. Yeah, yeah. Out of curiosity, and you don't have to answer if you don't want to, I know a lot can change over time, but what are your long-term aspirations with real estate investing? I mean, do you have five house, 10 house, or is, or is the sky the limit? Um, as of right now, well, our first phase of real estate investing was that we wanted enough apartments to pay the mortgage of a single family home. So for us, that looks like probably um, six units or three duplexes. Um, so our first phase, we want to get one more property and the cash flow from all three of those properties will pay the mortgage for our own primary residence. Um, but I think like the next phase of that is probably like 10 units, 12 units. Um, we'll see how that feels and if that feels good, but that's kind of our plan for now. Um, we don't have ambitious goals of owning hundreds of units. I don't think that's us and that will ever be us. Um, but those are kind of our, our goals for now. Very cool. Uh, it makes a lot of sense to me. I, I would probably be in the same boat for what it's worth. I think it'd be great to have that not passive, as we said earlier, but semi-passive income that's kind of paying some of the bills but uh, I, I don't think I'd want maybe the stress that would come with a large real estate empire. Yeah, no, that's not really our gym. I mean, our whole thing, like Ali was saying before, is like, so we're, we're not like, some people like love real estate and they're all about real estate. I mean, we like real estate because of what it does for us from an economic standpoint. But if, if you showed us an investment tomorrow that was like, this will give you way better returns, that's where our money's going. So right now, we haven't found anything to necessarily beat it in terms of our goals. Um, but we also, on the side, in conjunction with real estate, we're also building our index fund portfolio. And we want to try to have as many legs under our financial table as possible so that if one day we're like, you know what, forget about this whole real estate thing, we have three or four other income streams that can support us. Very nice. So let's talk about that for, for a couple minutes. So your index fund portfolio, just out of curiosity, uh, do you take advantage of like tax advantaged accounts or kind of where are your where are your index fund investments being made and then which index funds are you choosing to invest into yeah so we both tax advantage and uh non-tax advantage so we have a roth ira um and then we have a taxable brokerage account and so both of which well actually 
The Roth IRA is comprised of the S&P 500. So we use Vanguard's and it's actually, it's not an index fund technically, it's an exchange traded fund. Yeah, um, okay. So it's, it's VOO, uh, the Vanguard S&P 500. Um, and it's entirely S&P 500. And then in our taxable brokerage, it's 100% uh, VTI, which is the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index Fund, um, which is basically you own uh, a share in every publicly traded company in the United States. So in essence, you own the entire economy. Um, and those are the two funds that we own. Excellent. Excellent. I can support both those funds. And, and we've talked about index funds a lot here on the Best Interest Podcast. And I think VU and VTI have come up before, but if not, the idea of uh, total market U.S. funds or large cap S&P funds have come up before. Terrific investments. One more. This is a fun question, guys. Before we get into the classic uh, rapid fire questions, I did have one note I took and I'm looking over here on the side because this is where I keep my notes. <laughs> so you mentioned that you didn't go on a honeymoon which is a very pragmatic choice to help you save for this first house. But my two-part question is, have you done something since that's been like a honeymoon? Or if not, where would you eventually take your honeymoon? Where would you go? Great question. So we got married. Um, we went on a mini moon. We did a little uh, weekend. weekend away in Cape Ann, Massachusetts, which is north of Cape Cod. It was really nice. Um, but then a year later, actually, like on the anniversary of our wedding, we did a two and a half week road trip out in California. We saw the Redwoods. We went hiking in Yosemite. We went to all your classic, you know, touristy stops up and down the coast, lots of outdoorsy adventure stuff. And the coolest thing about it is that we were able to pay for the trip in cash from all of the money that we saved house hacking. Yep. So we kind of like cash float our honeymoon. So pretty cool and definitely worth the wait. If we, if we had just, you know, kind of didn't delay that gratification, we probably would have came back with a ton of debt and we were new real estate investors. So um, we were really, really excited, but we wanted to do it in a way that aligned with what we were trying to accomplish. Um, and it just, it made it that much better to have a wonderful experience and not come back with a butt ton of debt. All right, guys, rapid fire question time. And feel free, you can take these one, one on one, or you can answer together. Totally up to you. The first one, though, is a way that I do my Christmas shopping. It's uh, what was the last material object or personal luxury that you spent $100 or more on? I just bought a pair of Birkenstock sandals today. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't tell Josh, and we normally tell each other about 100 or that's more our purchases. Threshold. Yeah. No, <laughs> so I, I'm telling you. I, um, I got an iPad off of. Uh, Facebook marketplace about a month and a half ago. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Well, this can also serve as the best interest confessional. So feel free, <laughs> you know, we can, <laughs> this is a safe environment to talk about our purchases. You know, money is a topic. <laughs> those are both, those are both awesome purchases, right? Nice sandals. Very important. iPad. Very cool. I'm yep. talking to you guys through a, a MacBook that I got probably three months ago now. And it's so cool. I, I should have owned one much longer ago. All right. Next question. What's a good habit that you're trying to form or a bad habit that you're trying to break? Um, so my big thing is getting back into fitness. Mm -hmm. So I have been a lifelong athlete, um, played multiple sports and then part of a lot of recreational leagues, but I've pretty much been fairly sedentary for about a year and a half or so. Um, minus like the occasional Planet Fitness excursion. So really trying to get back into the swing of things of just like overall fitness. I think it's been hard with COVID because I think with all the craziness going on, you know, I think we had a pretty con consistent routine prior to COVID. Um, but I feel like we never fully got out of it or back into it rather. Um, so I'd agree with that for sure. Gotcha. Here, here. Same, same yeah. old story on my end. <laughs> Um, next one, what's your favorite financial tool or app or service that you use and why do you like it? Oh man. Um, so I'll give you two for me. Uh, so I really, really like personal capital as far as tracking our finances. Um, it's just a nice one-stop shop. It kind of aggregates all the data. 
and it gives you a nice kind of breakdown of this is your spending every single month, this is your net worth, this is how everything's going. So I really, really like that. And then kind of like the running joke of our house is like the most popular app on my phone is the calculator. Um, because I, it's always, you're always on the calculator. I am always running numbers, whether it's a rental property, prospective rental property, ROI, a stock index, you name it. I'm always running numbers pretty much nonstop. So the calculator app on my phone. So because Josh shared our favorite personal finance app, I'm going to go a little out of the box with this one. And, um, during the peak of COVID, before we made the Phi Couple, we watched the documentary called The Social Dilemma mm -hmm. on Netflix. It, if you watched it, it's like very thought provoking and depresses you a little. So we watched it. And then I went on my personal Instagram account and I'm following tons of different influencers, accounts, whatever. Um, mostly people that make me want to spend my money on clothes or, you know, I feel bad after looking at them. Cause I'm like, wow, they're like such an Instagram model. Right. So I decided that I didn't want to be a consumer of things that were not fulfilling me and making me feel better about myself or helping improve me in some way. Um, so I started following educational platforms and I think my favorite personal finance app for us is Instagram because I think there is such incredible knowledge and resources and people and community um, on Instagram. And we learn so much every day from experts in different fields. So I feel like we surround ourselves with such an awesome personal finance community on Instagram. I think it just like when you surround yourself with people that get it, um, it forces you to level up. And I think it has really forced us to level up in so many different ways. Yeah, I'd agree with that. That's an awesome answer. And we're going to come back to Instagram in a few seconds because I think after this podcast, a lot of people are going to want to connect with you guys on Instagram. And we'll talk about how they can do that. But real quick, before one more question, I will say I did not tell these guys that the podcast is sponsored by Personal Capital. So <laughs> Josh, thank you for the excellent oh, advertising. Funny. Folks, if you want to sign up for Personal Capital, hit up that link in the show notes. <laughs> Uh, cool. <laughs> it's a good app. It is a good app. Josh okay. and Allie agree. Um, so one last question before we get to the important, you know, how do people contact you? The last rapid fire question is if I gave you guys a billboard and you could share any message with the world, what would you say? Uh, do good to others. You know, that's honestly, I, that's my, my number one thing. And whether it's the five couple or just like in my personal life, I think, a lot of times we're like, oh man, like how can I change the world? And that's like a really, really daunting thing. I think sometimes we underestimate how impactful just a small kind of act of kindness can have on like a person's life. And you never know like how much they needed that nice gesture, whatever it is. Um, so I would just say like do kind things to others just because it's a nice thing to do. I would say something different, but I agree with that. I don't okay. think that's a bad one. Right. Um, we talk a lot about like our why and why we're doing everything. And it's because like our time is finite. It's the most precious commodity in the world. So it is, I don't know if that's what my billboard would say, but something along that effect of, are you living the life you want to live? Are you spending your time the way you want to spend it? And if you're not, what do you need to do to do it differently for us? We are aggressively paying down debt and investing so that we can quit our nine to fives and have more time with each other and the people that we love. So I think it's a great thing to do. Yeah. I love both those billboards. I would, I would honk at those billboards as I went. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, thank you guys so much for coming on the podcast. And as I alluded to a couple minutes ago, people are going to want to reach out to you. How can they do so? So you can pretty much find us on most social media platforms on Instagram. We are at the FI couple. Um, we have a Twitter, the FI couple. And uh, is that it? Well, we also have a website. We have a website, www.thefycouple.com. Yeah, no. And, and <laughs> honestly, we try to be as responsive as possible. So if people have questions, feel free to shoot us a DM or an email, uh, info at thefycouple.com. Um, we talked a lot today about real estate. Um, that's something we are very passionate about and specifically house hacking. Uh, so passionate about that we decided to write a book on that topic. And so it's it's all the information we wish we knew when we first started buying real estate. And so uh, we put that into an ebook. So if you go to our Instagram, 
uh, it's right in our bio. Um, and we'd love to hear your reviews. Excellent. And after everything you guys have kind of enlightened me and us with today, I can tell that book is going to be chock full of knowledge. So very cool. Allie and Josh, thank you so much for coming on to the Best Interest Podcast. Thank you so much. It's been so much fun. Yeah, absolutely. It's a pleasure. Huge shout out to the FI couple. Thank you guys for coming on to the Best Interest Podcast. And if you want to get a hold of Allie and Josh, the FI couple, I've included all of their links in the show notes. If you want to reach out to me, my email is jesse at bestinterest.blog. You can follow me on Twitter, where my username is bestinterest underscore JC, or you can follow me on Instagram, where my username is thebestinterestjc. If you find this content valuable and you want to give back, there are three easy, free options for you. The first one, subscribe to this podcast via the app you're listening to right now. And the second and third options are to leave a rating and leave a review of the Best Interest Podcast. Tell me what you think. I love hearing back from you guys. We can continue to invest in one another because, as Ben Franklin said, an investment in knowledge pays the best interest. Sharing with others is investing in their knowledge. So thank you all for listening to this episode number 35 of the Best Interest Podcast. That is so cool. That is so cool. All right. All right. Time for, well, actually. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You just <laughs> said butt, butt ton of debt. Butt ton of debt. What the F is that? So, no, I have like, I have like all these Were sayings. you trying to say a shit ton, but you were making it appropriate? No, I just, I have all these I've little. I've never heard you say butt ton. Yeah. I say butt ton. I say eager beaver. I say, like, don't say butt ton. That needs to end. Yeah. I don't, I just not a. <laughs> I'm plan. sorry. Just so you guys know, I usually clip out the funny audio clips and I stick them at the end of the episode after the credits. So like this is, this might have to go first just so everybody knows what they're getting into, you know? People were on the live last night and like, I don't think about it. I just like, it's like things you pick up from your parents. why? Your mom says butt time? Yeah. Like I literally can't even hear this word. It's the dumbest word I've ever heard. No, I I, I could see it. I could see it. I mean, right. I, I, you know, shit ton. Got a shit ton of shit ton of stuff. Yeah. And then, you know, a mom wants to make it a little more appropriate. Ooh. She says butt ton. Butt ton. I get it. I get it. Uh, I'm not saying that I I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to be the mediator here. Because I'm not right sure now? that I would, you know, I'm not sure I want to incorporate butt ton in my <laughs> vocabulary. All I'm saying is I, I know where it comes from. The etymology makes sense to me. That's a hundred percent accurate. I guarantee that's the word. <laughs> So it was just a mom trying to do good fire son and you're hating on it. Okay, well, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, I've got a butt ton of rapid fire questions for you. <laughs>